Hello everyone and welcome to the very first edition of the View from the View podcast. Well, okay, I'm going to contradict myself immediately and say technically this is the second, the first edition of the second version of the View from the View podcast, but this one's going to be a little bit different. We're going to talk about the things that us DJs don't normally talk about, um, the behind <laughs> the scenes world that we live in, because... I think it's entirely a different world to what a lot of people who even maybe adjacent to the DJ world expect. And uh, I quite like revealing a few secrets here and there. I wouldn't quite call myself a magician, but we don't. Ha- we do have a little magic circle, which is what this community, this group, is all about. Uh, I'm Mo Stewart, in case you didn't know from recognising my voice, aka the Mighty Mojo. I've been DJing around Liverpool and a few other places for about. 15 to 20 years now, and uh, I've picked up a few tips, a few things on the way, a few mad things have happened to me on the way as well, and I'm sure that's going to be the case for every single one of my guests, and it's time to introduce the first one. Uh, sitting alongside me is what I would call a local legend. <laughs> he will balk at that suggestion, Aww. but it's true, 100%. When I first started DJing in and around town and going from bar to bar, his was one of the... Um, sounds that I really was influenced by and someone who everybody I spoke to in the DJ world has only got good words for, the man they call Morph, <laughs> Steve. Welcome to the show, thanks for coming along. Thanks Mo, it's fantastic and what a, what a great slick operations going on here as well. Well yeah, I mean the, we, this, is, this brings me on to a good point actually, this is very much going to be an audio podcast, I know that nearly everything these days is filmed and I did think about making this into a video, but I think there are certain conversations that we're going to be having whereby the the person on the other end of the microphone might not necessarily want to reveal their, their face. They might want to stay anonymous <laughs> and might fruit loosen their tongue a little bit, maybe. We'll see. <laughs> but yes, uh, rather than recording this in my bedroom, which was my original plan, uh, the lovely people at the Anfield Rap let us use their studio. So we're draped in red and we've got proper microphones. So... You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds so clear, clear, clear. <laughs> oh, we'll, we'll get on to your fancy effects very soon. But we should start at the beginning, mm. um, because obviously DJing's a strange job, and it's an even stranger job to get into. Everyone I speak mm. to, it seems like their origin story is a little bit weird, a little bit different. Yeah. And but one of the reasons I wanted you to be my first guest is you kind of epitomise what I want from this show, as in... Not only do you look a lot younger than you actually are, but there's a lot about you that I don't know, and I've known you for a long time. And I suspect that there's, from what I have seen and the kind of skirts around the edges, I'm sure it's very interesting. There's so, a few stories in there. I'll, I'll try and not and uh, self-incriminate myself too much, but um, oh yeah. yes, because I've used your name. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, start at the beginning. Like, tell me how you first got into it. Yeah, it's it's um, it's interesting that you kind of describe it in that way because the the longer I've been in it, the the more I see DJing as almost a refuge for slightly broken people. One hundred percent. And and it's I I don't know I, I could wax on philosophically for for a while about it, but you know it there's there's something that we all seem to have in common and. Uh, I, I don't want to get on the psychologist's couch too much about it, but, you know, I look at the, the path I've gone through, and obviously there's been a point in my life where music seems to have filled the gap, and I've just gone, whatever is in me that I need to get out, 
I'm able to kind of express through this utterly profound medium. I don't really I quite understand it, but it's it's fulfilling a purpose. Mm. It's talking for you, basically. Exactly, yeah. And and especially when I was younger, I was just I, I was like a, a a sponge, just soaking it all up, just going, I've got to hear new stuff, all stuff, everything, all the time. I absolutely loved it and it seemed almost like a sort of natural progression. Um, you know, got into adulthood and was buying records even before I had a record player. Um, and, you know, with the intention of getting decks eventually because the DJ culture was kind of growing and it was, yeah. you know, quite a cool thing. So I'm, I'm going to get my decks. And I, eventually the day came and I got my cam belt drive turntables <laughs> from Richard Sounds with a little... Uh, what was it called? Made to fade mixer that was literally a metal box with two faders on it. <laughs> Ten LEDs, two faders. It was up and down. That was it. That was your choices. No gain control, no master control, nothing like that. I, I might have had a crossfader. That might, might have been the luxury edition. But yeah, and so it's kind of just, that's where it started, really. And how long were you doing that and messing around before you actually got paid to do it? Mm, yeah. Well, I suppose I was quite lucky, really. I suppose it was a, there was a gap of maybe two years from starting in my bedroom to, to getting my first paid gig. Um, and the reason was because there was a lot of people around me who were really into DJ culture, and there's already people who were... were um, pretty good DJs. There was a, um, a flatmate of mine had a really good mate called Pablo from Wales, who still DJs, I believe, uh, and he used to be signed to like Hard House Records. The, 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 am I saying no? Heart House, you know, the ones that Hard Floor were on. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so he was kind of in the social group and also helping me giving me advice and so on and so we we used to just throw free parties in liverpool and they were they're terrible because it wasn't even that good equipment we just right. like you know tried to find whoever had the biggest hi-fi and we'd invite all our friends around and it was a, it was a it was a kind of time when the clubs would always still kick out at two o'clock so Whenever it got to two in the morning, you'd be outside just going, right, what are we going to do now? And there was always a plan. There was always somewhere to go, um, you know, especially with Lark Lane around that time. You'd be, even if you didn't know the address of a party, you could get a taxi up there yeah. and you'd get dropped off at Lark Lane and just go, shh. And you keep... <laughs> <laughs> it's like... I think it's Livingston Drive. <laughs> yeah, honestly, it's like the Pied Piper of Slide on Bass. I've been on that journey many, many times. And in fact, it's around Wavertree as well. And it's funny, isn't it? Because for me and for a lot of other people I've spoken to, that's really part of it. It's like before you even think about doing it as a job or anything like that, it's, wow, I want to get involved in music. And being in and around it and parties and just people just saying, okay, what's next, what's next, what's next? You're not really thinking about it. And you're kind of taking in all of these um, extra ideas that are suddenly going to become relevant when you start trying to do it yourself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think it was... I'm kind of letting go how old I am here, but I mean, it was well before the era of of internet and, you know, probably I mean, even mobile phone ownership and stuff like that. And so, yeah. 
It's fine. It's so, fine. So yeah, you know, it, it, it was like if you threw a party, there was it, there was a lot of random factors, and it was it was a case of you didn't have a unless you hired security, you had no choice over who came in or not, and right. it kind of. Yeah, there'd be some wrong ones that turned up, but they'd be diluted by all the happy party people. And in a sense, it kind of, there was quite an interesting, like, cultural mix of people going on. And it was, like, a little bit bit edgy, but not too much to make it feel on top. And it was, you know, lots of people of lots of different tastes as well, all coming and kind of, you know, sharing this kind of still relatively new kind of free party dance music kind of revolution that was that was going on um and it was very exciting to kind of get on board with that even if it wasn't from the start um so yeah so we we you know eventually we um we threw more and more parties ourselves and getting better and better equipment and eventually um it got noticed by uh, Mark and Jace Jones, who were running the Mardi Gras at the time on yeah. Bold Street, who were who currently running uh, Electric, um, or the one that used to be... See, this is uh, going to become a running theme of this show as well. The names of places that have changed about 10 or 15 yeah, times over absolutely. the course of the time I was living a Crazy there. House, Crazy House, that was the thinking, yeah. The one place that used to be Crazy House, which is now the Electric Electric Warehouse, or is it just... I don't know. It's it's still the Crazy House building. It's where medication is now, and um, the... Are we allowed to swear? Yes, of course. Shit indie disco, and, you know... (laughs) I mean, that's officially their name. That's not even really technically swearing, unless it's also your (laughs) comment on those guys, but we'll save that in case they come on. (laughs) So, yeah, so anyway, Mark and Jace running... um, the Mardi Gras on Bold Street, which was, it's not there anymore, but it was a building where Size is now, yeah. the, the the first and second floor on there. And it was it was great place for hearing new music. And they approached and said, well, you know, why don't you kind of make it official and do something proper in a proper nightclub? And, the, um, and so, yeah. Um, but the first paid gig was a little bit before that. And it was in Barbar of all places. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but Barbar was a, was a, was a, it was a different place when it first opened because it, it was like it was like something not seen before, and it was it was in an era when pubs were the de facto yeah. place to to go and drink in the evening, and it was like it was one of the first places that was a bar rather than a pub, and the design of it was so modern and slick, and and to go with it. There was lots of really interesting DJs playing there, and to be asked to play there, you know, I was like, oh wow, I didn't get asked back. (laughs) I was terrible. Well, I mean, the Bar Bar story is quite an interesting one because it kind of feeds a little bit into the bumper story, which is something which also connects both of us. Uh, But like, Bar Bar, the the kind of for people who aren't known in Liverpool, it's kind of a bit like they have lots of. Fancy cocktails, bright lights, shiny stuff. But it is essentially the kind of place you go when you're not in control. When other people are saying, let's go to a place, this place looks fun. Because it always does look (laughs) fun and it always sounds loud and bright and shiny. And it is, to be fair, normally quite full. Uh, And I've had some fun times DJing in there. But I probably wouldn't go in as a punter. <laughs> Not now. No, 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 no. no. It's, it's, a, it's a fun place, but I maybe we're just too old or I don't know. <laughs> well, it's funny you mentioned the age because we have kind of skirted around it for quite a lot. And 
it is a job, really, that most people get into when they're young, when they're going out a lot, and they're like, mm. I'm going out and I'm seeing the world, I'm seeing the culture of DJ, and I want to get involved in it. Uh, I, I'm excited by new music, I want to bring them out, and it's the same music that me and all my mates play, and I want to go out and play it. One year older than the kids, as we now undoubtedly are, the mindset kind of changes a little bit what it has for me, but... How do you approach your mindset? I mean, how do you approach a set in general in terms of what are you wanting, what are you main wanting to do? Are you talking about trying to educate people with new music? Or are you just like playing bangers to make people dance? Or are you trying to be a little bit more sophisticated somewhere in between? <laughs> Uh, that's a very interesting question, to be honest, because, it, you know, the, the whole landscape has changed, really, because um, I think um, when there was a differentiation between places that had a licence up until half, well, 11, 11.30, and then if you wanted to carry on drinking and go to a nightclub, as it was, mm. which was the only option for carrying on drinking after 11.30, you had to go to a club and they're usually charged to get in. The DJ would get paid well and he'd play whatever he wanted. Yeah. And you, you, you just... You just lump it. You know, <laughs> exactly. You just put up with it because it's like you, you're happy that you can still buy a drink and it's one o'clock in the morning. But now, obviously, there's so many late licences and everywhere has a, a, a mini DJ with a mini dance floor. And, and it's, it's in a sense, it's so competitive in that you can't get away with just being niche anymore. And there's, there's like, some excellent venues, thankfully, like Kitchen Street and other places in the Baltic that do, do cater for really interesting music. And it's left the other places to kind of... Oh, fight amongst <laughs> themselves. And we'll probably talk about this again later, but, you know, I'm sure other DJs have had, had the, the, the experience where it, it's, a, it's a buyer's market for as, as far as people who want to listen to music when they go out. Um, and I've been in a situation literally where people have come up to me and it'll be in a venue and you, you know the type of venue I mean where there's like, there's there's literally probably 12 other venues on the same street yeah. all trying to compete for the, the same footfall. And people come in and go, play such and such or otherwise we're going next door. And it's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Literally holding the gun to your head. Yeah, what, what can you do? I mean, you, you can't keep everyone happy all the time. So I suppose what coming back to what you've asked asking is essentially have to maintain a dynamic attitude all the time in the sense of like um, the game can change any minute. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day, your main purpose is to try and whoever does come in, keep them there as long as possible. And sometimes you have to make <coughs> some <laughs> creative sacrifices, <laughs> shall we say. Um, <laughs> I know exactly what you mean, yes. And I've had a few other conversations with some DJs, uh, you know, that, that did used to be highly principled, shall we say. But as time goes on, you realise there's a very functional nature to grafting out those hours day after day mm. that like okay i am gonna play abba even though i would have balked at the idea <laughs> 10 years ago oh my ago. god it is abba isn't it it's not it like i know right we have a facebook group dedicated to the view from the booth which is where most of us djs uh, congregate and it's where we kind of 
let off steam. I think it's fair to say yeah. as well as as well as some other more <laughs> productive, constructive things. It's not all moaning. It's, it's a lot of moaning. But one of them is the a seemingly unstoppable return of ABBA. And it baffles me how it really does seem to be the younger generation more than older people who are asking for it now. And if you, like you say, previously, you'd be able to say, I don't like ABBA. I can do what people want. I can give them what they want from ABBA without actually having to go into ABBA. I can go here, I can go there. I can kind of like subterfuge a bit of ABBA in there. But now it's like, nah, it's like it or nothing. And I think the venues have kind of cottoned on as well. So you kind of essentially get leaned on in some places. But yeah, the the whole kind of bit you touched on, the the mixture between it being a desire and a pursuit of passion and doing it for long enough and regular enough that it is still actually a job. Like, Ooh. I feel like that's a shift in scale for me. And there are little nuggets I'll always give myself. So, like, if we're playing, like, a six-hour set, then at least one time an hour I'm going to be like, fuck y'all, I'm playing this song because I like it. And I think that you guys should start listening to it and hear it more. And the next <laughs> yeah. time I play it, you'll all start dancing. And I have to go always feed myself at least one of those an yeah. hour. Yeah. So like it's your own sanity. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do, you, do you have similar stuff like that? Yeah, absolutely. I always, whenever I get the opportunity, I always try and kind of just slip in something that maybe not be completely unknown, but is like alternative enough. For I know that there'll be like a small pocket of maybe three or four yeah. really cool kids in the corner <laughs> that'll just go, oh, he's playing that. Yeah. And they'll be made up because they're not expecting to hear anything cool and they're just willing to put up with the, the, the kind of mediocre stuff because the place is busy and has got an atmosphere. Because they know if they just went to a place that just played their taste of music, it would be empty. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> They've also had to come to terms with that reality, just to say yeah. what we have. And I want to say, if you're one of those people, can I just say thank you? Thank you. <laughs> Even if it's just a case of you kind of nudging your mate and going, uh, oh, look, listen to this. That's enough. If we see you, that's yeah, enough. Yeah. You keep us going. Yeah, exactly. We're eyeballing you all the time, be realising <laughs> that. Because, you know, if, if you tap your foot... You know, that is it. We're just going to go off on a half-hour set based on whatever you tapped your foot to. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that's another one of my favourite um, DJisms that I think people don't know about is we are all amateur psychologists. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah. we are watching you at all times, and if you think, oh, that sounds a bit creepy, damn right it's creepy. <laughs> but we have to do it because this is where we get our cues from. Like, mm. if you're in a place where the music policy is fluid, where you've got a little bit of autonomy, and you're trying to, like you say, cater for lots of different people coming in and out, you want to kind of try and keep it moving, but you don't want to... I always tried not to be too abrupt with things. Mm. So you're taking cues, you're kind of playing playing a song and being like, oh, what's this going to do? Like like a little experiment. And so your reactions are really important to us, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And especially in an era where I think the, the, the musical tribalism has kind of been diluted out. You know, there yeah. used to be a time when people would walk in, you could tell straight away what their taste in music was from what they were wearing, the T-shirts they were wearing, the shoes they were wearing, everything. But everything's become a little bit kind of... I don't know. I don't want to say vanilla, but like mm. diluted 
in that everyone's got their own style, but everyone kind of looks a little bit the same as well. <laughs> yeah, no, I know what you mean. And I mean, I'm, I'm guilty of this uh, as well, you know, because it's not like... <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I, you wouldn't necessarily be able to guess your taste. Based yeah, on your exactly. Appearance. If anyone's wondering what I'm wearing, I look like Mark Zuckerberg at the moment. <laughs> At the moment. Um, <laughs> now, there is another story. I know exactly what's going oh, through Mo's head yes. at the moment. Yes. He bumped into me in Glastonbury, uh, what was it, five, six years ago? It was or about something. Six years. I, I, I was uh, a different person at that point. And I don't think I could have had any more sequins on my body. <laughs> no. And it seemed like not only did you have those sequins on your body, but. They seem to kind of transform you <laughs> into this, like this magical kind of Willy Wonka style character, and you let <laughs> yeah. me through on a merry dance through many fields across many random characters. A very enjoyable evening. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. It's I, I, I spend probably three hundred and sixty days of the year being boring. <laughs> <laughs> And then just let it all out. And then let it all out. So that, that brings me to another um, conversation about the different kinds of gigs. Because obviously we've mainly been talking about bar gigs because that's the stuff that we do the most often. Mm. But you have done other gigs. You've done like festival gigs and done yeah. big oh, stages. Yeah. Well, like what? what's the most, What I want to say, what was the most surprising thing for you when you first kind of got into that? Oh, uh, well, to be honest, it's probably it probably where I started before I actually get got onto the, the bar gigs, because even though I, um, I did that gig in Bar Bar and I was doing this, I was well, essentially promoting and DJing the night at uh, Mardi Gras and eventually other venues as well, it was still very much my own taste in music and it was very niche. Mm. And so it wasn't really kind of relating to what we... It was It was kind of like the first level on, on a career to being a specialist DJ. But at the same time, I'd already been in bands and I was in bands at the same time and bands that never made it, but we, we got successful enough to go on, you know, tour supports with yeah. people and to go on tour in Europe a few times. Um, like we did tour support for... There was a band called Ism that was in, uh, and we did tour support for Chumbawamba. <laughs> wow! No way. Yeah, and, and it, it was it was two week tour with them just before they released that massive tub thumping hit. Right, so they were still that anarcho pop underground thing. They had a massive following. You know, mm. we were filling big big venues. You know, like one like six hundred to a thousand capacity venues. They they had a big pull. And so, obviously, Tub Thumping Thumping was a new song that they they had it in their sound check and they had it in their set, and we were going, let's catch a little number there. Yeah, 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 it might go go someplace. Yeah, and (laughs) after two weeks of listening to it, we were like, uh, yeah, a bit bit too catchy, a bit of an earworm, that one. I wish, I need to get it out of my head now. So you were sick of it before any of us even heard of it? Oh, that that isn't even the start of it. So basically, they said to us after the tour, they said, right, we're going to, you know, we've got an album and a single coming out. We're going to release Tub Thumping and will you do a remix of it? And we thought, yeah, great, yeah. So we did a remix of it and like spent like all day, every day solid for about two weeks going, well, this is the the biggest opportunity we've had Mm production-wise 
Uh, and so we want to make it make sure it's good and it was good and it ended up being the first remix on the, on the cd single so it was like the second track um and obviously two weeks of listening to I got no time. <laughs> over and over and over and over and over and over again oh for hours God. on end and we were just like uh, like feeling physically sick from the repetitive of it and it's, it's all right it's chumbawamba it's not going to do anything it's fine we'll oh never hear it again and then what happened <laughs> what happened and then like it wasn't off the radio for six months so ah <laughs> so wait did, did anyone actually play your remix version because yeah yeah sky sports used it for like their rugby program and um didn't see any money from it because <sighs> like well and we got like 400 quid or something but didn't get any uh, prs royalties or anything um, so, if you're listening, guys, uh, <laughs> <laughs> want to share any of those? Yeah, definitely. Uh, no, but yeah, uh, just so we, yeah, so we, we had some fun, and we we played played eventually played some pretty good places with Ism. We did um, the first year that the Glade stage was on at Glastonbury. We did the oh, Glade yeah, stage, and that was really good. Um, uh, we played with Mad Professor in Paris. Um, that w- which uh, yeah, which w- was fantastic, but at the same time, we we sounded like some somewhere between the Prodigy and Chemical Brothers, right? Uh, and so go, going on first at a dub night, there, there, were, there was <clears throat> there was <laughs> one thing I remember from that night was someone came up and goes, "Ah, this is not jar music." <laughs> I mean, he was right. Yeah. To be he, fair, he, he was right, and we, and we knew it. You sometimes you just have to take it on the chin. I, that's what, I wonder about that though. Like when you know you're in a hiding to nothing. Like sometimes you just walk in and you know it's like I am unarmed and this is going to be a firefight. I'm going to get massacred. Yeah, yeah. It's it's funny because the bigger the gigs get, that the higher the stakes are and the bigger the potential disappointments can be. Because we 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 did uh, we ended up doing a couple of European tours like as headliners and. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! No, the, the, there's part of it that I, I I cannot tell you. I cannot tell you. It, it needs to be saved for a, a, a memoir when all the old people in my family have all right. Okay, gone. <clears throat> so I don't. Imagine. Well, yeah, we are we are going to be promoting this in places where they'll probably will see it. So yeah, we'll, we'll maybe put that behind the subscription. But we'll but in short, basically, we you know. We'd, we'd do some fantastic gigs in front of thousands of people and then go to an, the next gig and it might be a two and a half thousand venue and eight people turned up. Uh, and, you know, we just go, oh, really start questioning life. Um, so, yeah, and I did that with another band called Surreal Madrid. We did quite a few gigs. We, we played, at, um, what's that? Uh, Benicassim Festival oh, wow. in Spain. Uh, and we went on because you know like in Benicassim because of the 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 heat of the day they have a lot of the lineup going on at right, night yeah, so yeah. they have like um the headliners are on very quickly and then the kind of rest of the night kind of peters out so we were kind of going on just before basement jacks so we had quite a good crowd because people were coming into the tent early going oh you know they'll get a good position for basement jacks and that was that was fantastic and apart from <clears throat> 
This this was a band that w- there was the, the main guy behind it, Colin Owens, who used to be in Scorpio Rising. He was he was the main kind of creative guy in it, and I was brought in to bulk the band out mm-hmm. when it when it needed on big stages and tours and stuff like that. So I played bass for them. Um, and on this particular occasion, we'd only had two rehearsals before actually going out there. And so the, uh, the, the, the our, our sound guy basically said, right, I've got this multi-track tape and with all the parts for all the songs on. So what we're going to do <laughs> is like everyone who knows their lines will Control. be fine, but, but I'm going to listen to you in my cans. If you're playing the right notes and you're in key, then I'll fade out the, the, the bass from the backing track and I'll fade you in. If you're not, then I'll just leave the backing track in. I was like, I- I'm cool with that. That's that's okay. And so uh, everything was going fine. I was all right and got to the last song. And it was being filmed for MTV. The MTV cameras were there. And there was one that was like, happened to just decide at that moment to focus on me twiddling with the controls on the amp stack. I don't know what I was doing. I was just bored and probably... Tell me you've still got a copy of that video somewhere. I I never got a copy of the video. I I was too embarrassed to actually watch it, to be honest, because because I was holding a knob on the amp stack when the song started with the bass line in it. Oh, no. <laughs> and I very obviously... No, no one in the crowd could tell, because I was right at the back. But, like, the MTV cameraman's looking at me going, the bass line's just started, and he's not playing. And he, I looked at him, he looked at me, and he just went... And shook, oh. his, shook his head, shook his head in dismay. And I was like... All I had to do was spin around and go... Hey, twang, twang, twang. It was too late. He'd already looked yeah. in your eyes. Oh, the, the shame, the shame. <laughs> So yeah, there's, there's there's some big ups and downs, big ups and downs. But like what you were saying before about the playing to nobody, I often think about people who've been at the very very pinnacle and played to thousands and thousands, who are then playing in bars and then we've all been there. Us DJs been where you go to a, a place and you're optimistic. And then you just kind of settle in two hours later to the idea that there's only going to be 10 people in here tonight. And you, I don't know, my mind often wanders back to some of the better times. Like, how how do you kind of rationalise that? Is that just like the passing of time or just like... Well, uh, I think this is probably a good philosophy of life. you really got to hold on to the, the, the good memories like your crown jewels because they're the ones that you go back to in those times of need when you just go, why am I doing this? Where, where has life led me to? Yeah. All right. Well, well, that leads me perfectly to my next question. What's your favourite ever gig? Favourite ever gig? Oh, 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 oh there's, there's so many to choose from. Um, uh, I don't know. There's been a few really big ones. There was, what, there was a festival in Poland... Um, that we played in front of 35,000 people. Shit. Um, and that was amazing. And I expected to be absolutely bricking it. <clears throat> but one thing I realised about playing in front of a crowd that size is you can't see <laughs> those people. Right. Like, you know, it's all, especially at night, it's all dark. All you can see is like maybe the like 2,000 people in front where the stage lights hit them. 
And usually what happens is like out of 35,000 people, there's bound to be one or 2,000 at least that think you're all right yeah. and will make their way to the front and whoop and cheer and you just go, yeah, I'll just look. Hey, hey, we're all having a good time. You're having a good time. I'm having a good time. And it was great. Um, so, yeah, I suppose the kind of rush of, 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 you know, and thankfully I've been able to do a few gigs on that sort of scale. And I always love doing it that that sort of scale because the people are already there. Yeah. You know that some of them are going to enjoy it just by the pure maths of it. <laughs> um, but the, there is one there is one gig that I, I want to tell you about because it was probably the, the best we'd ever been treated as artists. Oh, right. Okay, yeah. But at the same time, was, I want some of that. Uh, at the same time, it was probably one of the worst gigs that we'd ever done, <clears throat> ironically. So... Uh, take us back to like 2009, something like that. And um, one of the projects I'm involved with and still involved with, Addictive TV. Yep. Um, audio, visual kind of mashup um, artists. These days we concentrate on a project called the Orchestra Samples, which if you've got a chance, Google it, have a look at our videos. It's kind of world music, but it's cut up of recordings we've made ourselves of folk musicians from around the world. Oh, cool. And basically we record them just improvising and then make uh, like kind of gorillas style bands out of them where they've, they've never met each other, but they're all jamming together kind yeah. of thing. So <clears throat> you get the idea, but... Back in this time, we were doing, you know, film remixes, mashups of like The Clash and Azealia Banks and stuff like that. So it was all kind of quite party uh, orientated. And um, the government of Abu Dhabi got in touch uh, and said, like, listen, right. Uh, so this was about a time when Dubai was really kind of starting to embrace Western culture. Wait, and Have they already bought Man City by that point? I think they'd only just uh, bought Man City. I, I can't remember when they did, actually. I think it's around the same yeah, time. Yeah, probably about the same time, yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me, because um, they wanted to catch up a little bit with Dubai in the sense of the, the they saw the tourism success they were having and just going, yeah, we want a slice of that. Um, and so they said, right, so what we want to try and do is do like a, a big beach boutique like Fat Boy Slim did in Brighton. And we were like, yeah. Yeah, give me some of that. <laughs> we like the sound of that. And he says, okay, so we're going to do a trial run. Okay. With you guys headlining. All right, right, okay. So we thought this is going to be great. Um, and, you know, it, it was a good fee. You know, it, it, was, it was all like, oh, it was the first time I'd ever been to that part of the world. But at the same time... Well, I was very conscious of the fact that, the, that there was still a lot of uh, kind of friction between their culture and our culture. Yeah. And it was about the time when Groove Rider, you know, he was at his peak. He had a weekly show on Radio 1, but he got sent down for four years but just for having like two grams of weed in his bag and some porn. But, you know, <laughs> um, and I think he got out after 10 months and that was about the best that our yeah. government could no negotiate. And people and was, have heard of him. <clears throat> Exactly, exactly. <laughs> like, no one's coming yeah. for your ass. Ain't no government going to save my ass. <laughs> Addictive who? No, sorry. So anyway, um, I was absolutely bricking it. And I, I, I just thought, I'm not taking any chances. So, so my suitcase, as you can imagine, had been in quite a few high-risk environments. Mm -hmm. So I'd hoovered it like about 10 times to make absolutely sure there was no traces. Because at the same time, there was like, there were stories about a Swiss, na Swiss national 
who'd been arrested and been sent down for four years. And four years was the minimum sentence for any kind of drugs, like even microscopic traces. Damn. And he didn't even have drugs. He, was, he had like three poppy seeds from a bread roll. Wow. Yeah, and because it, it, it did a positive on the heroin test because of the poppy <laughs> seeds, and it was just like, the, that was in the news as well. So I was like, <laughs> So you can just imagine me. With my hoovered suitcase, turning up to the airport with my one suit, so the Armani suit that I got from a charity shop that I brought out for weddings and funerals, <laughs> all pressed and dry cleaned, <clears throat> looking like like someone professional. And it was great, you know, got to the check-in desk and they were like, oh, yes, uh, we, we already had business class seats because being a government gig, they, I don't know whether they owned Etihad or part-owned Etihad, but it was just like, you know... Pfft, Give, give them comfy seats, yeah. They like bouncing money between yeah. the companies. Yeah, yeah, So anyway, they said, we'd like to upgrade Mr. Hollands to first class. I was like, damn. <laughs> <laughs> this suit's finally paid off. <clears throat> so, yeah. And that was like an experience that I'll probably never, ever have again. But it, 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 was, it was nuts. I mean, you get first class and there's first class. And this was just like, you know, hello, sir. You know, if you want us to prepare your bed... And it was, it was like, the, like the, they pull the thing up and basically turn my whole seat into a miniature bedroom, lay the bed flat, they bring out a duvet, blanket, even gave me fucking pyjamas to wear. What? And How I, long was this flight? Six hours, I think, something like that. <clears throat> oh, yeah. I mean, I'd have put the pyjamas on just for the hell of it. Yeah. I don't care. Uh, and uh, obviously, I was uh, at the time, the, there was three of us going, and, and uh, uh, Graham, who was the main kind of uh, creative... Uh, source in the project who, who did 90% of, of of the work in the project and there was our tour manager so I was kind of almost a peripheral member yeah. and they were going why didn't you <laughs> but of course they hadn't twigged and you know Graham had turned up looking like he was going on holiday to Marbella Nick the tour manager looked like he was going to a book reading on and Pay Online. And you looked like the boss. And I looked like the boss. <laughs> so I got the first class seat. All right, motherfuckers. So, uh, yeah, um, uh, the, the, even during the flight, there was a, there was a problem with Graham's seat. And, the, you know, he, he, even in business class, he was reclining. And it was just on the other side of where they, they, they stole the trolleys. Oh. And so it was going bang, 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 bang. And he was just like, so he tried to slip into first class <laughs> in one of their spare seats. And the steward was just like, no, 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 you're not having any of that. So in the end, there was a bit of a to-do, and I had to get up, and like there was just absolutely no way he was, the steward was letting Graham into first class, and I said to the steward, look, I'm sorry, he's, he's lacking of sleep, he's a little bit tetchy, you know, I, I just apologise about this situation. He's like, <laughs> so bear this in mind, right? So the way we got treated, when we touched down on the tarmac, again, because it was all government-funded, we got treated like international diplomats, not just like visiting artists. It was like when we got on the touchdown, on the, on the tarmac, the steps got connected and there was two Range Rovers sat at the bottom of the steps. And, a, and an air stewardess with our names on, they'd driven out to pick us up separately from everyone else. And when I got to the bottom of the steps, I turned around and oh, it just pointed at Graham because he was coming down the steps and go, oh, these are for us. And I also saw the steward who denied him a first-class seat kind of like a... Oh, oh shit. <laughs> that's my hands chopped. <laughs> oh, 
Who are they? Who are these people? <laughs> wow. And so, yeah, diplomatic channel, everything. Went to a five-star hotel. Got treated like, you know, absolute kings. It was amazing. But then the gig happened. And so, okay, so they said, you know, Big Beach Boutique. We're yeah. thinking, oh, this is going to be, you know, big production. It's going to be like, you know. So <clears throat> they take us to the beach uh, alarmingly late in the day. And we, so we get there for about half five and we're sat in the car. So, all right, oh, should we get out of the car and set up? And goes, oh, no, no, it's a family beach. And then, what do you mean it's a family beach? You know, we'll get arrested as single men if we go on the family beach because up until six, unless you've got your family with you, you're seen as a pervert and you'll get arrested. It's like, what? Yeah, having a laugh. But no, rules are rules. Damn. So we couldn't even set up until like the family beach time had finished. So anyway, family beach time's finished and we got taken out onto the beach. I was like, where, where's, where's he? Like expecting some big, you know, no, no. They'd, like they'd only just managed to muster up like a few kind of risers in the middle of this <laughs> beach. No protection from the Middle Eastern sun to stop our equipment from just like melting. Even though it was six, it was still hot. Uh, so, all right, all right, just let's crack on, crack on, we'll get on with it. And they said, you know, obviously, we're audio-visual act, act on the, the rider is the fact that we need a big fucking screen behind yeah. us. Otherwise, the whole thing just doesn't make sense, because to try and describe as quickly as possible, it basically, you know, with film remix, for example, we'd, we'd take um, incidental noises out of films, like maybe a car tire screeching or, or a car door slamming, and use those elements as percussive elements within like an electronic track. And then whenever those sounds appear, those little clips yeah. would appear on the screen. So the audio itself sounds very cl clanky and noisy, almost industrial. But when you see the video with it, you go, ah. Makes sense. Yeah, of course, but there was no screen. So when's the screen turning up? And they were like, ah, oh, screen? You, no, you'll be all right. No, 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 no. We need a screen. So lots of phone calls, lots of people running about. <clears throat> um, this guy turns up with um, what can best be described as a miniature version of a World War II blimp. <laughs> what? Like, of all the things I thought you were going to say, <laughs> like, I genuinely thought you were going to say you had, like, a little TV on a stand or something. <laughs> well, that's where we ended up. <laughs> that's where we ended up. So anyway, the blimp goes on, and obviously it's like a round Zeppelin-shaped thing, and the, the, the picture was all distorted, and we're just like, no, this, we, we can't have it. We can't even make out what, what's being projected onto it. And, and, and then it's like there's a cultural difference because it's coming in going, oh, we can't tell the guy to go home because he'll lose face. And, and again, there's this, there's this cultural thing of like pride is such an important yeah. commodity over there. It's like once you've asked someone to do something, you, you, you can't tell them not to because it'll be embarrassing for them and they'll be publicly shamed. And so like, okay, so we've, we've got to deal with this blimp. So like, at least get us a TV from the hotel or something <laughs> so we can stick it on front of the stage. As it happened, that was quite adequate, adequate for the crowds that turned up. Oh, man. Because they hadn't advertised it, and in the end, it, it was um, just people who were packing up their stuff and kind of walking back to their car going, what? What's it? Oh, interesting. But they'd already paid you. Oh, yeah, they'd already paid us, so that was, that was fine. And then yeah. who got the first class on the way home, though? 
Um, I think we had swap by the end, so yeah, Graham got first class. Yeah. yeah he's only putting it with that once. <laughs> yeah. Might have even lent him my suit. <laughs> right. I mean, it's harder to find a bigger story to top that. So I'm going to wrap this first show up with the thing that I'm going to be asking every single person who comes on this show. You get to play your ultimate gig, and that can be wherever and whenever or in front of whoever you want. But I want to know what the last three tracks are. Oh. oh. Now, I probably should have told you this before I had a time, because I know what it would be like for me to running through hundreds. But there are a few that come to mind as my ultimate thank you and good night mic drop or headphone drop moments. Mm. Wow, yeah. I suppose um, for if if it's like a main room vibe, I suppose I'll always have something in my heart for um, Insomnia by Faceless. Oh, yeah. Um, but I'd, pr- I'd probably, the answer, I'd probably be try and be clever and go, yeah, I'd, I'd play three of my own slammers that I haven't written yet. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're allowed at least one of your own. I mean, I yeah. don't have the benefit of having my own tracks. I mean, there's a couple of mashups in the ether that I've technically got my name on, but I've never created my own track and played it out. So if you have had the ability to do that, by all means, throw it in. That's definitely allowed. Yeah. Oh. Well, Steve, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me on this maiden journey. Uh, I hope you all out there have enjoyed it. And uh, let me know. I'm sure you all will. And uh, stay tuned for episode two. Cool. Thanks, Mo.